Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest today is longtime friend Michael McCarty, who is the Chief Membership and Business Development Officer for SOCAN. Michael. Hey, Bob. How are you? Okay, so explain what SOCAN is. SOCAN is uh, simplistically the Canadian version of ASCAP and BMI. So it's the Performing Rights Organization in Canada. Uh, it's also now involved in mechanical rights, uh, but that's its, its origin, and it, and it was formed from the merger of CAPAC and PROCAN, which were predecessors, and they were literally ASCAP and BMI Canada. Okay, a little bit slower. So yeah. the acronym stands for? I'm not even sure, to be honest with you. It's not Isn't really, it Society it's, of? Uh, Society of Canadian Authors, uh, uh, Composers, and Music Publishers, but it's not really an acronym. It's just... Okay, so there were two. Yeah. And... How when, how long ago did they merge into uh, one? Like 1991, something like that, 92. And yeah. what caused that? Well, I think it's just a realization that um, it was inefficient to have two different organizations. You know, the U.S. is an anomaly in the world, right? There there aren't many countries in the world that have more than one PRO. So uh, it was inefficient, and uh, so we uh, needed scale and, uh, and get rid of duplication of effort. So they merged, and it's been a very successful thing. Okay. So since we're talking about a worldwide business today – can you think of any other country that has more than one performing rights organization? Well, I think Brazil uh, legendarily has about 10. Oh, really? Yeah. And of course, the U.S. now has four or five. Exactly. <laughs> we'll get into that. Okay. What is the genesis of performing rights organizations? Were they in lockstep with the developments in the U.S.? Because the law is not identical. But what is the development? Well, it, it really, you know, another another substitute term is collective, right? So right. really, they started as collectives. By uh, for the rights owners, typically writers and publishers, and uh, they knew they needed to aggregate their rights together to blanket license radio and and, and other licensees. So it's really, you know, uh, uh, parallel to the development of, of radio and technology that they started. Okay, now the big difference between the U.S. and the rest of the country is neighboring rights, correct? Right. Yeah. 
Can you explain that for my audience? Neighboring rights really is the existence of the performing right in the master recording. So that means when the master recording, uh, when the recording is uh, aired, broadcast, streamed, whatever, it earns royalties too because it's got a co- its own copyright. Um, neighboring uh, the, the nuances of why it's called neighboring rights, it's a European term, but we don't have to get into it. But that's basically what it is. Well, get into it if you know it. Well, I don't know it that well, so. Well, wait, wait, wait. You, you stepped in the hole. Let's see if you can climb out of it. Uh, so basically the, 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 the philosophy is the prime right is the copyright of the song, of the composition. Uh, and uh, and a neighboring neighboring right is, refers to sort of a secondary right, or it's 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 a neighbor of. Well, you the know, I right. did not know that. I thought it was yeah. neighboring right because country to country. Oh, they yeah, were I neighbors. I don't think so. No. Yeah. Okay, so what we're basically saying is, when the record is played, a payment goes to the copyright holder of the record. Right. And it's so can you collect that? Correct. No, we we, we collect it for the composition, not the not the recording. Actually. Recording, uh, Sound Exchange in the U.S., right? Right. Uh, Canada Resound, which is a collection of other organizations, and uh, PPL in the U.K., et cetera. And um, uh, so it's, all, it's, it's, it's a parallel system that's very similar to the, to the copyright. Oh, I collectors. thought that in some countries they were unified, but obviously. They, might, they, they may be, but not. Okay. Not so. Actually, sorry, we just formed a joint venture with Resound to jointly license uh, what we call general licensing, which um, is the bars, restaurants, hotels, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's called in tandem. And so now you in Canada, you get one license if you own one of those establishments uh, instead of having two parties coming at you. Okay, let, let's yeah. assume I'm paying. Yeah. How do you guys split up the money? Uh, it's in relation to what, what the license fees or the tariffs are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now – this is all controlled by the government in Canada. Government, uh, well, government plays a serious role, obviously, creating the Copyright Act in the first place. Right. Um, Canada has the Copyright Board, which is a quasi-judicial body that regulates copyright royalty rates and and secondary terms. Um, it used to be that all of our license fees were based on those those we call them tariffs. It's a you know it's a court case. You file it and you have uh, hearings and evidence, etc. But since the digital age, particularly, we've tried to um, negotiate as many licenses license deals as we possibly can, rather than go to the court, uh, the the rate board, uh, the copyright board, because it's very long, time consuming, very expensive for everybody. Okay, but are there <clears throat> tariffs that are established yeah. in case you can't make a deal? Yeah. Okay, yeah. were there tariffs established for streaming music services? Uh, there are tariffs, yeah. Um, but again, uh, virtually all of our licensee arrangements are are uh, negotiated. And they're negotiated with the tariff in mind, but there's a lot of elements that the tariff doesn't talk about, which which are important to us or important to the licensees. So there's an incentive to, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to negotiate it, not the least of which is it sometimes takes so long to get a tariff uh, ruled on that – the technology is dead by the time the, uh, the tariff is settled. So Okay. But just so I understand, they do establish standards. Yeah. It's just if you want to argue with those standards, you would then go to court. Yeah. And increasingly, it used to be that we would go, we'd go to the copyright board, file for a tariff. They would make a decision, and that would be it. Then, so, then the next phase was uh, we have, had existing tariffs. We'd say to the parties, hey, let's instead of us file a revised tariff or a new tariff, why don't we sit down and negotiate it? And then uh, most lately, uh, a lot of times we don't even go to the board initially. We just start the, the, the negotiations. The board's always a fallback if uh, we don't like the way the negotiations are going. Okay. Why don't you explain, because you're the expert, why there are so many performing rights organizations in the United States? 
Well, uh, I think you'd need somebody who knows more about the U.S. Uh, environment than me, but my understanding is um, it all started when uh, ASCAP was declared uh, a monopoly in antitrust in the, was it the 40s, I guess? Yeah. And, you know, my understanding of that is um, basically they went on strike. They didn't like the, the rates at radio. They, they uh, pulled the licenses. Radio didn't have the right to play music anymore. So uh, they they pushed some buttons in the government. The government declared them in a uh, monopoly and, and put them on an antitrust consent decree. And radio said, um, never again will we rely on one source of repertoire. And so they started BMI. Okay. But recently, this has been a growing area. Yeah. We have Global. We have CSAC. Okay. What do you think accounts for, let's say I'm an act. Yeah. Okay. Other than Azoff's company, which we'll save for a second, which only has a lead X signed to it. But to go to CSAC or another PRO, what do you think the motivation would be? Well, look, the the downside of having so many PROs in the U.S. is that, um, uh, you know, there's so, there's, it, it's, it's kind of a dog's breakfast in some ways. And there's and there's uh, it, it's complexity and a lot of duplication, et cetera. The upside is just competition. And, of course, you know, America is the land of competition. So if you look at it as a glass half full, um, it gives writers – there's competition for writers' business. And each one of the PROs has a different pitch as to why they think they're the best and they make the pitch. And uh, sometimes it's – a lot of times it's relationships. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's a business side of the pitch. Um, it, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for them, so I don't want to give their, their individual pitches. But they've all got – compelling pitches and they've all got great organizations and great people. Okay. Would be part of the pitch being that I can collect better than the other people. You know, I've, I've seen every, uh, every element, uh, played, you know I mean? Uh, I think they all believe that they're, they're the best collectors. They're all believe that they do it the, the cleanest, the most uh, thorough. They all believe that they have, um, the best staff that can help your career. Um, and, um, you know, that's the, that's the pitch and, and they're, they're great organizations. I mean, you think of how, how big they are and how much money goes through them. Uh, they're, you know, basically the biggest PROs in the world. And, um, uh, we have a great relationship with them all. Our, one of the, uh, main things that I was brought into SOCAN to do is to, um, uh, reverse the situation where over the years, our, some of our members had a lot of, a lot of our high earning members had drifted away and become uh, members of ASCAP and BMI. Uh, more than any of them. And, um, uh, you know, we set out to reverse that because we want, we want Canadians to be members of SOCAN. Uh, well, the reason I came to SOCAN was I thought it was a great opportunity to be one of the two or three people with my hand on the rudder of an organization I thought was extremely important to the um, ecosystem in Canada. And, um, you know, I could see where the future was going, and I wanted to try and help make sure that institutions thrived and survived. And uh, one of the main ways to do that was to get our members back and make sure that new new Canadian artists and writers were uh, were members of SOCAN and wanted to join SOCAN. And it's we've done a pretty good job so far because you know, as you know, Canada's killing it in music. Um, Toronto arguably is the hottest music city in the world, and we have almost every single person coming out of Canada now that are SOCAN. Okay, members. so what's your pitch? Our pitch is um, just what we said earlier, which is I think we think we're great collectors. We think we have um, uh, great opportunities when you're the early start of your career to help uh, you connect the dots and help connect you into the ecosystem. And we're complementary to publishers and labels and managers and agents. Okay, let's slow down. Let's slow down. Let's just uh, take the top at level. Yeah. I'm a big act. I'm Canadian act. Right. I'm with BMI or ASCAP. What's right. your pitch to them? Uh, 
what I just said, plus um, you make more money with us all else being equal because we don't charge um, for the foreign income. So every, all the money coming from outside of Canada, uh, we don't commission. Uh, and uh, so, Okay, so yeah. BMI and ASCAP, they all commission that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and how can so can get away without commissioning it? It's just a decision that the, they made quite a while ago to, as an uh, attempt to try and uh, convince people not to leave. And, and they said, you know, look, stay here and we won't commission the money. So just a, the cost of it is, is uh, embedded in the cost of running SOCAN. We're one of the most um, efficient PROs in the world. And um, it's, it's, it's a lot less costly to administer the foreign royalties than it is the domestic ones. So, um, it's and not, that is because? Well, because um, uh, the foreign PROs have, always, have already done a lot of the work matching the you know the repertoire and so the, you know we get statements from them and it's it's easier to go through those than to do all the original matching ourselves i mean don't forget i mean these days an organization like ours is we're tracking like 200 million performances a day now <laughs> so it's pretty it's pretty uh, daunting and so we think that we're uh, one of the most advanced in the world in uh, in doing all that and that um we have the uh, uh, high touch uh, service we have whole team of people who are assigned to uh, to members and they have a personal relationship with them. And we hear quite often that people really appreciate that. And even if you're a big star, your business manager really appreciates it. Okay. So let's say you're collecting in Canada. Mm-hmm. People always say this, oh, my record was played, whatever, I didn't get paid. Mm-hmm. How much is it digitized and accurate to what actually is being played? So I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I was on the board of SoCan for twenty. Wait, wait, just time out. Yeah, SoCan is owned by who? It's a it's a it's a not for profit collective owned by its members, and the members okay. are writers and publishers. Okay. Yeah. Even though it's a not for profit, we we try and uh, adopt a for profit mentality in terms of you know not being a, a state bureaucracy and feeling like we have competition, et cetera. But so. For uh, when 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 BDS came along, a number of explain people, what that is. Uh, BDS is a service from uh, Nielsen that uh, listens to radio stations. The computers listen to radio stations that identify the recordings. It's finger, audio fingerprinting, like Shazam. And um, so when that first came along, uh, a number of a number of us on the board said, "Hey, SoCan should adopt this because you know one of the the main complaints you used to hear in the from about PROs back then, wherever." whatever country we were that with everybody uses a survey system to figure out what's being played on radio and how could that possibly be accurate. So um, several years of discussion went on and, and investigations and, and finally, and there was no, there was no obvious argument why we should do it because we were going to, weren't going to make any more money. It wasn't going to change the license fees coming from radio. It's going to cost a lot more money than the survey. It's going to create a lot more data to, to handle. And the only question was whether it was more accurate or not. And intuitively we all felt, thought it has to be more accurate. So um, we hired somebody to study our survey. And this is back in the 90s. I yeah, sure. yeah. Hired somebody to study the survey, and um, um, they said, your survey is the most accurate in the world in, amongst PROs, and that it's accurate within some, you know, they had the statistics of it. Right. And um, and uh, so the, the management at SoCan at the time said, see, there's no reason to, to, to let go. So, but a number of us, sort of the kind of younger ones said, you know what, this is the digital era. The reason why we have to do it is because it's stupid not to do it. And that's, and then we said, okay, let's, we're going to take on BDS. And they, for a year, they ran BDS in parallel to the old survey. And the number one thing they learned by doing that was that the survey was incredibly accurate. Um, now, does it miss onesies and twosies once in a while? Yeah, the surveys do. So the there is there's no question that the that um, uh, BDS and and that type of audio fingerprint technology and, and digital monitoring is more accurate, um, but it's really the long, super long tail. 
Okay. Uh, but it's cheaper to do. And and it also it, what I mean, it the startup was, costs were heavier, but actually to do it is cheaper. Yeah. And the number one thing uh, that it did for SOCAN was uh, they had to think about how to handle the orders of magnitude greater amounts of data. So they set up uh, processes and, and uh, technology to do that, that when the digital era came along and you look around the corner and, oh, my God, there's a tsunami of data coming, SOCAN had, was already set up to handle it. So unlike some of its peers around the world. So that, that was really the number one benefit of doing that was be ready. Un- unintentionally preparing okay, for the future. Okay, let's go a little bit slower. I'm a person. I have a song. Yeah. It's played on radio once. Is that tracked? Am I going to get paid? It, uh, yeah, it's tracked now. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll get paid. And I will get paid, although mm-hmm. one, one play won't even, probably isn't even a penny. Well, on radio, no, it's approximately a dollar. Let's, let's, let's say it's a dollar. Wait, one play is a dollar on radio? Yeah, like ish. It's uh, really it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's probably less than that, like seventy-eight cents or something like that. But it's yeah. Okay, how do you then extrapolate or do in terms of, as you say, restaurants, cafes, etc.? Yeah, well, those are those are harder. So you know, um, various um, that goes back to the sort of survey mentality, right? So it's rough justice, it's approximations, and we we tr- try and figure out. Um, uh, uh, well, actually, these days, some of the music services that serve those places, they have the data. Um, they know what's being uh, performed. So we get that data. In the cases where you don't have the data, we try and figure out, okay, this money that we collect from those licensees has to be paid out as fairly as possible, as accurately as possible. We have no data. So let's um, – what data can we get? We can figure out, well, you know – most of them play popular music, so we'll take that music, that their license fees, and we'll put them in the popular music uh, uh, pools, so that people who have mu- music that's likely being paid played get paid. But increasingly, we're doing things like um, uh, experimenting with putting, uh, you know, Shazam or BDS type listening posts into into clubs. Uh, the EDM world uh, and the DJ world are very concerned about um, accuracy, and so right. we're working with them. We have what we uh, working with Pioneer with their, for their Kuvo service, where they have a they can uh, produce a data stream of the titles that, be that the DJs playing. So, Pioneer, uh, what was Pioneer's uh, motivation? Um, I think they created this thing called Kuvo. I believe it was a social media platform. They wanted to um, know what was being played, say in Lisbon. So that people dancing in London could see on their phone what, what their friends were dancing to and, and maybe request that kind of thing. So they needed that data stream. So we're really working really, really hard to try and make sure that there's data every single place music is used. We have um, uh, a lot of big plans in live because one of our uh, biggest problems, and the same as all the PROs, is getting uh, accurate set lists from concerts, getting the artists to, to, to give them to us. Some places in Europe, the promoter is required by law to... Uh, produce the set list of not in North America. So we have to uh, figure out how to get that set list. So um, we're, we have a, uh, we're the first PRO in the world to have uh, API platform. So API is application programming interface. So it's basically how one platform talks to another and computers talk. And um, so we have APIs basically for every capability of our platform, including sending us your concert stuff. So there's a, uh, we built up the, the APIs and thinking that there'd be a third-party marketplace would spring up, that people would have services that they'd need to connect with our platform. And sure enough, a company in Calgary came along called Mazuka, and they, what they do is they connect all the parties in the live music ecosystem, managers, uh, to, uh, agents, um, venues, promoters, et cetera. 
and they shared digital assets about a tour, uh, videos, posters, uh, whatever, the information on the tour. And one of the byproducts, of course, is everything we need to know to pay a concert except for the set list. So they use our APIs so that you can, using their app, Mazooka app, you're an artist or a manager, whatever, you can dial up your catalog out of our, out of our, our database, create a set list, and push a button and send the, all the concert information to us, including the set list. And that's really revolutionizing how, how we deal with the live concerts and have been okay, incredibly so, successful. Okay, and a venue, well, how, do they, how is that fee established? Percentage, uh, well, in concerts, it's a percentage of the box office. It's 3% in Canada. It's uh, a lot higher than that in some European territories and a lot lower than that in the U.S. And, uh, right, so it's not a flat fee in the U.S.? Well, you know, it, it, of course, in our world, as you start to peel back layers, it gets right. more and more complex. And part of the reason for that is that, especially in the copyright board era, every single licensee thought that they were different and the rules shouldn't apply to them, so they would go to the copyright board and the copyright board say, okay, we'll make an exception for you. And, and, and then it just becomes very complex. But very simplistically, if you have a hard ticket, uh, it's 3% of the box office. Okay. Let's assume I sell my catalog, like Merck is, is buying up catalogs. Right. How does that affect my SOCAN? Uh, I saw Merck last night, actually, by the way. Okay. <laughs> um, it doesn't affect it at all. We we pay whoever the owner and and uh, an and or administrator is. So um, uh, if uh, a catalog changes hands, we just uh, take the hose uh, out of one plug and put it into another. So a writer can sell his rights, his SOCAN rights. Uh, great question. Uh, SOCAN has historically um, uh, not allowed that. In the last few years, um, we've liberalized that a lot uh, because we realized that it's a different world now. Um, there's more information that people have. It was sort of to protect writers from you know bad deals, I guess. That would be the mentality that it was. And now I think it's a much more sophisticated world. There's more information out there. There's more advice you can get. There are more people wanting to to buy a writer's share. And so we have uh, situations where it, where we allow it. Some Every bureau around the world has kind of a different mixture of, of rules around that. Let's go back to an earlier comment. Why is Toronto such an epicenter of music creativity? Great question. Um, Canada's always uh, produced a lot of talent, um, as you know. And, and uh, uh, I think that the sort of perfect storm that's happening in Toronto right now is a, is a, a function of a lot of things. I think that um, the the support for Canadian culture that the government introduced a number of years ago. In fact, this is the 50th anniversary of the Canadian content regulations on radio. Um, profound effect on the ecosystem. Uh, and uh, nowadays, we've got... Um, uh, you, if you look at the people from Toronto who are kind of killing it, so we've got Drake, The Weeknd, Alessia Cara, Sean Mendez, uh, etc. Um, those are the above-the-waterline part of the iceberg. The below the waterline is actually, to me, a bigger story, and that is all the producers, beat makers, co-writers that work with them. Like we have 80 members in the greater Toronto area that are co-writers on Drake and Weekend records, not including Drake and the Weekend. And um, uh, the, the reasons for that are, um, if you look at all these people killing it, there's there's a number of things that are, they have in common. One, they're disproportionately multicultural. They are disproportionately immigrants or first generation children of, of, of immigrants. You're talking specifically in Canada, Toronto. The Toronto, yeah. Uh, this, well, as you know, Canada is a very multicultural country. Exactly. But the real big clusters of that are Toronto and Vancouver, right? Well, don't, I, I had a cab driver once in Toronto said in there Montreal. are more, more ethnicities, more cultures represented in Toronto than any other city in the world. Yeah, I think there's like 103 languages or something. Right. And and so these kids, um, uh, so th there's that, there's that. Um, 
uh, like look the weekend for instance is a great example he's an Ethiopian Canadian he's born in Canada but his mother wasn't he's managed by a Lebanese Canadian born in Lebanon and an Iranian Canadian born in Iran and uh, th- th- there's no better example than that um, we did a uh, my, my head of A&R Rodney Murphy and I a few years ago did a made a word cloud of uh, the artists we're talking about and the beat maker co-writer producers and you put it up on the screen and um, it's remarkable how multicultural it is. It's just, it's really the Okay, it is century. multicultural. Why does the multiculturalism uh, engender success? Um, well, I think that all the usual reasons why immigrant communities, you know, have the drive, et cetera. But I think in this case, also part of it, one of the reasons for the direction of the music, which is a big part of why it's so successful, the direction being, of course, hip-hop, uh, pop, and, and, and related music, is because these kids, they grew up, um, uh, they want to reject their parents' music. Um, their, their, their household is not connected to the historic thread of Canadian culture. So rock, folk, whatever, they, they're not getting that at home. Uh, and so they get exposed to the music of the world, uh, coming through the major media through the, and, and that's generally American music and it's generally hip hop. So they kind of grew up in a, in a more hip hop, uh, uh, urban music centric environment than, than, uh, the people, their, their friends were and their neighbors were. Um, and then another, uh, uh, common thing is that they all make music in the box, of course. It's on the, in the computer. Um, live instruments play very little but role. But why is that uh, an advantage that Toronto has compared to the rest of the world? I don't think it's an advantage compared to the rest of the world, but there's a huge beat-making community in Toronto. I think arguably, I, I say two things that are kind of bold that, you know, maybe there's a slight exaggeration, but I don't really think so. Um, Toronto, in many ways, controls the sound of popular music in the world today because of all the people we're talking about and the success they have. Um, and it is indisputably the beat-making capital of the world, I think. And one of the reasons for that is community, and it's a you know, community amongst the kids that are from these uh, immigrant families, and they go to the, and they live in those neighborhoods, or they live in, in neighborhoods where, um, uh, you know, they're passing around mixtapes, you know, in, in a previous generation. Um, and uh, there's actually a guy named Rich Kid who uh, – was one of the early adopters of what was then called Fruity Loops, which is a, a digital platform to make music, and now called FL Studios. And and he was a real leader in getting other kids on the platform and teaching them how to use it. There's been a couple of organizations, one called uh, the Beat, Toronto Beat Academy, which was started by two women uh, who saw these young kids around them that were really talented, but they might get lost in the street. It's kind of like uh, people in the neighborhood starting a soccer team or something. They started this thing called the Toronto Beat Academy, and they had beat battles. That was the primary activity. And but it became a community where they all shared information. When did that start? Probably ten years ago. So maybe, okay. maybe, maybe a little bit, bit longer. In fact, um, uh, one of the founders of it um, was in the press about three, four years ago, uh, and the headlines were "From Homeless to Harvard." At one point, she was homeless, and she ended up crowdfunding uh, herself to Harvard. And um, so anyway, the Beat Academy uh, got these kids into international beat battles. It gave them confidence, um, uh, uh, you know, connection to each other, some sort of structure. Uh, they taught each other tricks. They won most of the beat battles they entered. Um, and there was another organization called the Remix Project, which is a project in the Regent Park area in Toronto, which uh, is a challenging area and, for kids. And it was intended to keep kids off the street. And one of the programs there was a was a, um, uh, a music program. And actually, some of Drake's people uh, early on started uh, teaching there. And so this became both these things became farm teams for beatmakers. And arguably now, just to be clear, they get yeah. any government support. Um, 
The Remix Project might have. Um, we've SoCan has helped support these organizations with, um, uh, you know, helping fly people to uh, beat battles and, and that kind of thing. Um, but largely no. But um, we'll go back to the government support connection in a little while. Um, anyway, so that's one of the reasons why it's such, it's so huge. So you got you know Frank Dukes, uh, Boy Wanda, Noah Sh- Shabib, um, uh, Murda Beats, uh, Doc McKinney. Uh, uh, Wanda Girl, one of the greatest uh, female beat makers in the world, she came from the Beat Academy. And, you know, it's, it's just to really be clear, is the Beat Academy just like an after school program, or is it something where there's actually courses? No, no, it was kind of like an informal after school right. program. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, um, so, so you got that aspect. So, that, so you know, modern beat making uh, became a really big thing in Toronto. And of course, you know, all, nothing happened if it wasn't for Drake, but I'll get to that in a second. So, you got their disproportionately immigrants or children of immigrants make music in the box. Live instruments play virtually no role in the making of the records and live. They play like sort of a prop role. Um, and uh, uh, they all made it through the internet. Either they became popular with the public first and then got signed to a deal or, or vice versa. But the internet played an incredibly important role. Don't forget the last two people. Actually, in fact, I think the two biggest music success stories on Vine were Sean Mendez and Ruth B. And, um, uh, you know, so that's an indicator of how, I don't know why it happened in Canada and nowhere else, but it did. Um, and uh, then one of the most important things is that the, this is one of the most mind-blowing things to me and had a profound effect on how I think about the industry now. When I realized this about five years ago, I was talking again to Rodney Murphy, my head of A&R, and we're analyzing this, this group of people. And then I realized not a single one of them played a gig before they were famous. And, you know, especially a country like Canada where the, the live, you know, grinding out in the clubs and bars uh, was such a big part of, uh, of having a career. And it just sort of blew my mind when I realized that. And when, when we first started saying this to people in the business, you'd have to wipe the brain matter off the wall. And, uh, but anyway, so that, those are all common characteristics, right? And um, there was an incredible... Um, uh, uh, sort of boiling pot of water of talent uh, in, in hip-hop and R&B that was, that was kind of bursting at the seams in Canada for probably 10 years that couldn't get out of the country because um, the American industry would not take that uh, Canadian playing that music seriously. Uh, I spent a lot of money in my publishing trying to develop that scene and uh, uh, lost most of it um, and had a lot of support from my New York uh, and L.A. Uh, compatriots, but they just didn't think that Canadian could ever do it. And you know, that manifests itself in a million, million different ways. Either they said, well, it's good, but it's Canadian, or it's not good, or but what it really was. It's kind of like Nashville. You know, that uh, It's hard for Nashville people, Nashville people to imagine something from outside of Nashville working in Nashville. Right. Um, and uh, in spite, this is in spite of the fact that you know, the Brian Adams of the world and the Guess Who's and the BTOs and the Rushes had broken through that barrier uh, in rock music. Uh, but that barrier existed. It really did. Uh, and then, so somebody had to break through in, in hip hop and R&B. So um, Drake existed. Uh, J- I think Drake exists because A, he's mega talented and incredibly smart guy, but B, because of the TV show Degrassi. Uh, and uh, th- that's a really good example of the Canadian support system because there's Canadian content regulations in television as well. There's a grant system. Just explain with Canadian content so regulations to, are. In radio and television, you have to play a minimum percentage of, uh, of your airtime has to be Canadian content. Okay, let's just stop for yeah. one second. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, 
a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the era of the internet, how important is that still on radio? Great question, because... um, we're, at SOCAN, we're really concerned about this because not so much about radio because that's long settled in. Um, but it really, in many ways, this regulation saved Canadian culture because um, in the you know media eras in the 50s, 40s, 50s, early 60s, um, Canadians were swamped with American media. And it was very difficult for Canadian voice to be heard unless you moved to the United States and got a record deal and became famous like a Gordon Lightfoot or a Neil Young or something like that. And um, so they created the, the legislation. And in fact, at that point, um, Canada was um, uh, not a very confident country in terms of its own uh, identity. And um, uh, Canadian radio would not play you because you were Canadian. The Guess Who is called the Guess Who because they tried to put out an independent record 
Uh, and when the, the independent label realized that if anybody guessed they're Canadian, they wouldn't play the record. So they, they wrote guess who question mark on the label to get the disc to question, to, to guess it, make it turn into a contest. And they thought that was the name of the band. So they had to change the name to the guess who. That's how bad it was. Um, and so, uh, you know, you fast forward to now. And, and we have all this incredibly healthy ecosystem, very much partly because of the Canadian content regulations. Um, but um, it's, we, have, we think there's a real discoverability problem in the digital uh, area. So I'll get to that, back to that in a second. But with Degrassi, so there was con- Canadian content regulations on television wait, 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 as well. Wait, wait, wait. Let's talk about the development of Degrassi and how yeah. that happened with the government, et cetera. Yeah. So um, it was created by um, uh, Linda, Sch- Linda Schuyler and her husband, Stephen Stone, who was a well-known music attorney. And... Um, they wanted to create a television show that um, uh, was uh, uh, positive role, uh, uh, for kids and not the usual entertainment BS and that talked about real issues the kids really wanted to know about and talked about at school and, and, and encountered at school. So um, there's a, a, a very healthy grant system to make uh, television programs in Canada. So they got some grants um, and they probably just, – just, just because I live in the U.S. Yeah. Obviously, you have these grant systems. You're supported by the government. How does the average Canadian feel about paying taxes to support that? Um, I don't see or hear anybody talking about that. Now. I mean, certainly when, when the legislation first came in, the content re- legislation first came in, and then the, when the grant systems propped up, popped up shortly after that, there was a lot of people saying that. But they take it for granted now that that that's what the system is, and, and it's been a very— Just because we live in the United States, this is bandied about— what is the top tax rate in Canada right now, income tax? Well, I'm not an accountant, but it's more than 50%. It is more than 50%. Oh, yeah. And also, although Trudeau was just reelected, uh, there is some conservative pushback in Canada. Mm-hmm. What do you think the temperature of the country is right now? Well, you know, we obviously see what goes on in U.S. and U.K., et cetera, and um, there's, uh, uh, there was a sort of a, a more conservative movement, as you said, but, and it resulted in, in Justin Trudeau having minority government. Um, so they didn't, they didn't, it wasn't a change in government. So you're probably, and with every minority government, you're going to see probably more governing from the middle. So there probably will be uh, a swing towards, more towards the middle in Canada. But don't forget the left, right, and middle in Canada are totally different than the U.S., um, the U.S. generally is, I think, a much more conservative country, and and uh, um, you know some of our more left winging left wing uh, uh, political leaders over the generations might have been considered communist if they were in the United States, and some of the more right wing people would have considered be considered middle of the road, you know. Um, but that's that's just a, a general. Okay, just just before we get back to Degrassi, the fact that Canada has such a cultural impact around the world. Has that ultimately affected the feeling that uh, or not that uh, Canada is a second-class environment? Right. So good question. So I, I, I can trace, and certainly in my life, um, I trace the rise of, of positive self-identity in Canadians and national pride with the after the Canadian content regulations came in. Before that, there was very few, if no, there was no real music industry, and there were very few artists that you could look up to as Canadians that were role models or that talked about Canadian things or whatever. And again, the ones that you, you were aware of moved to the U S and, and came through the U S system. And, um, the, the existence of groups like the tragically hip, uh, I think are, is an incredible success story, even though they never really had a lot of success outside of Canada, this level of success they had had inside the country was absolutely unprecedented. 
And really, it doesn't matter that they weren't weren't that successful anywhere else because, um, uh, and I don't want to underplay the success they did have, but they they weren't as nearly as big right. anywhere else. And that's that's an amazing thing because look at any other healthy music ecosystem around the world, like Britain. We always talk about all these great stars coming out of Britain, all the great music. Well, if you actually live there for a little while, you see all the stuff that doesn't get out. Right. Right. And like the madness uh, right. the syndrome, right? Uh, from, you know, decades ago and you talk to a Brit, what do you mean you've never heard of madness, you know? Right. So same thing. And so I think that the existence of that kind of thing is a sim- sim- uh, is an indication of a healthy music ecosystem. And Canada never used to have that. Okay. One more thing. Used to be, if someone made it, you mentioned, you know, Neil Young, there's Joni Mitchell, Brian Adams. They would basically base themselves in the United States. Do you think that's changing? Yeah, although I think you go you go wherever your business needs you to go. Um, and so you look at Drake, you know, he's got homes here. He's got homes, uh, in, you know, in, in Toronto still. And a lot of them, you know, it's that Canada is their emotional home now more than it ever was before. And you look at Drake, how proud he is of Toronto and how he's, you know, been – multi-billion dollars worth of ambassador branding uh, uh, for the for the city. Um, and uh, that never used to happen before either. You know, I mean, people were, uh, before Canadian content, sometimes in some way Canadians were kind of embarrassed to be Canadians. And then the first wave was they weren't embarrassed anymore, but they're quietly proud. And now they're very loudly proud. And that's been an incredible development. And, and it's absolutely, I guarantee you, very much driven by by Canadian artists emerging. Okay, so go back to Degrassi. So Degrassi starts up. Uh, Drake's on it. Uh, Just to be clear, how many years has Degrassi run? Oh, I don't know. It's got to be fifteen anyway. Maybe. Was, De- was Drake wasn't on from the beginning? Was he? I'm not sure. I, I, right. I don't. Know I don't the, think he was, but whatever. But um, so fast forward to he leaves the show. And it's my. It's early my. No, no. Well, let's stop there it because it's important. It's like yeah. Trump. Yeah. Degrassi was not only popular in Canada; it was distributed certainly in the United States. Right, and nobody in Canada, other than people in the television business, knew that it was a success in the U.S. And um, was it also aired elsewhere? Oh yeah, all over a lot of countries oh, around right. the world. Yeah, but it was on Nickelodeon here, I think. Right. And, and so, funny story: when um, uh, shortly after Drake broke as an art music artist. Um, my wife and family and I were in LA visiting uh, with some people I used to work with here and um, two, two women had their families they used to work with them, their sisters and uh, um, uh, their kids were younger than ours and we were all sitting in this big family restaurant big long table Our, my family on one side theirs on the other side and the kids were really quiet they were, were not talking at all they were just staring at us and after a few minutes it got kind of uncomfortable and, and then the bravest one spoke up and said you guys don't sound Canadian <laughs> And we said, well, what do you mean? He said, you don't sound like those people in Degrassi. <laughs> and I said, oh, you watch Degrassi? And Celine, their mother said, my friend Celine, their mother said, are you nuts? It's the biggest thing amongst the teens and tweens down here. And nobody in the Canadian music industry anyway knew that. And that's one of the reasons why Drake was overlooked by the Canadian music business. Certainly, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my career was I could never, I can never, I'll never forget every week for a year in early MySpace days, Barb Seaton, who worked for me, you know her very well, and Tanya Coughlin and Mike Fox and uh, would, my staff at EMI Publishing Canada would sit around and we'd have an A&R meeting and we would filter the MySpace charts for Canada. And Drake was number one and number two for a year. And um, But and we, we didn't know why this was. I mean, listen, the music we thought was pretty good and blah, 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 you know, and, and, but we just didn't understand the entire picture because we had no idea that he was, had you know hundreds of thousands of fans in America. So... Th- 
basically his mixtapes are blowing up in America, and we didn't know that. And people who follow that stuff in the U.S., the Little Waynes, and the people in the industry saw that happening. And that was the that was the moment when everything became possible for Canadian music because they didn't care where he's from because the American public was had spoken. And so from that point on, it has not only has it not mattered that you're Canadian in, in those, those those genres, but now it's cool to be Canadian. Uh, um, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, one of our publisher members um, who runs a multinational in Toronto, the Toronto office, the multinational, was saying, we were talking about this very issue, and he said, "Yeah, so and so, the you know the head of the U.S. U.S. off creative staff just called uh, last week and said." We're signing this girl in L.A., um, looking at her bio material. Turns out she was raised in L.A. but born in Toronto. Would you mind if we said she's from Toronto? <laughs> that is really a switch. That's mind-blowing to Canadians, right, to think that, that anybody would ever think it's cooler to be from, to, from Toronto than L.A. But in many ways, it's true now. You know? Or at least I mean, it, what it is is just that Canadians don't they, – they people growing up, um, admiring Drake will now take it for granted that you can conquer the world and you can do it from Toronto and you can do it proudly. And there, and, and that, you know, there's, there's kids coming to Toronto as tourists that want to stand in a street corner that he talks about in his songs, just like, you know, used to happen to Canadians right. listening to American songs. Right. Coming to LA. Yeah. Okay. Before the Toronto scene, not that there always hasn't been a Toronto scene, the big scene was in Montreal, mm-hmm. broken social scene. What do you think caused that? Well, well, broken social scene is partly from Montreal. Well, I mean, the Montreal yeah. scene. I don't want to yeah. make it about broken social scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Montreal is incredibly vibrant city. It's one of the greatest um, places in the world to go to school, for instance. And so, and and you know, it's it's a, a very European uh, culture. That's the uh, uh, work to live culture more than the the work the live to work culture. So. You know they take art seriously. Um, they take culture seriously, and um, there's, there used to be a lot of clubs, and 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 it's a big uh, college town. So you get that that melting pot as well. You get Arcade Fire for, out of there, for right. instance, right? Um, and um, you know it's also her, uh, kind of the Quebec music scene is kind of hermetically sealed. It's sort of like almost like Nashville, where um, or even in England in a way. Like I've, I look at those music scenes as places where you, you look at it as a sport. You're in the stadium and you can, the game is unfolding on the field in front of you. You can understand the game. You can see the pre- with the ends of the box, right? So Quebec's like that, and uh, and and uh, it's um, it's got a star system, and um, uh, and it's kind of. Um, it's never easy to get careers revving, but it's probably easier there than some other places. Okay. To what degree do you believe Canadian social safety net boosts music development? What's well, huge because um, uh, uh, you know of Canadian content and the government grant supports and other 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 uh, encouragement of the arts, um, and uh, th- th- that's all tied to the same mentality, right? And you know, a Canadian musician doesn't have to worry about going to the hospital and if it's going to bankrupt them. Uh, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, a huge thing. Let's say I'm a, I'm a 22 year old person making beats in Canada. Right. Can I get money from the government just to live? Uh, they don't give you a check to live, but, um, you can, you've got, uh, organizations like factor, uh, no, forgetting music organizations. Yeah. I'm not even in the music business. Yeah. To what degree? No, is you don't there, get, you don't get paid by the government. There's to be no, an artist, to what degree no. is there welfare? Well, there's like welfare like there is anywhere. But, uh, but are musicians living on welfare? Uh, these days, not so much, no, because there's a lot of employment, you know. It's it's a healthy economy. Um, people have – it's a gig economy, so people, they'll have a day gig and, a, you know, and they uh, 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 spend their evenings and weekends banging away at their at their art and eventually 
could give up the day gig if they're lucky. Okay, Vancouver was historically a rock town. Is that yeah. still true? Vancouver, I, um, there's a lot of people talk about the Vancouver music scene. Um, in some ways, people say it's dead. Um, certainly the rock side of it, because the club scene has um, disappeared a lot. Um, but, you know, we at SoCan and uh, in our, in our staff, we truly believe that um, Vancouver could be the next biggest place because, again, you talk about multicultural, it's amazing. And we just think that people aren't fishing in the right ponds. And we're making big strides in, in making connections in the you know South Asian communities and uh, uh, places where you know there's somebody in their bedroom that's making something incredible. And uh, we just got they're not connected to the business because they're growing up not knowing, right? Okay, the story, and you were part of it, the story 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, was how publishers were starting acts. Right. And then they graduated to the labels. To what degree is SoCan involved in development and at what place in the game? So... 20, 30 years ago, if you set out to be a creator, music creator, artist, writer, um, one of the first two or three thoughts that came into your brain was, oh, I got to join SOCAN, or if the America, ASCAP, BMI, or PRS in England. One of the reasons for that is you'd see it on record credits, right. and you wouldn't necessarily know what it is, but you'd see it relation, it's in, in relationship to being a pro. So I, I got to join that. And it was, Just to be clear, yeah. if I'm an American, can I join SOCAN? Uh, there's no rules, but we, we do not... We don't want our members to leave and become members of the USPROs, and so therefore, in, 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 we don't want to sign people that the USPROs would want to sign in their country, own country. So, okay, yeah. but I could do it if I wanted to. There's no law that says you can't. No, um, but we we uh, we respect their territory. Okay, so go back to your point. Yeah. So, um, what was my point? Uh, you were talking about Vancouver. Oh, right. Yeah. So, and um, you're talking about development of acts. Right. So, 20, 30 years ago right. when we left it. Right. So when you first started out 20, 30 years ago, you thought of joining SoCan, ASCAP, BMI, whatever. Um, what we're trying to do now is trying to get that little logo back in the brain of somebody who was sitting in their bedroom and they're 14 years old and saying, I think I want to make music because there's an awful lot of other logos crowding it out. Okay. In the digital era, how do you yeah. get that logo seen? Yeah. So um, uh, we, want to we want to implant the thought that your career starts here. Anyway, so um, we have what we call the new member value gap, which we identify, which is, okay, if I join SOCAN, uh, what? What do I get? You right. Know? And, well, you get royalties. Yeah, but I don't have any music that's getting royalties yet, right? So so you can join SOCAN even though you don't have a record out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have five or 6,000 people you're joining. We have about 160,000 members. Okay. And um, so we try and create programs to um, – we look at it as a, it's an ecosystem. It's a pond. We want to be the sunshine in the pond. We want to, you know, there to be more plankton, you know, uh, more guppies and that kind of thing. And so uh, it's it's a less targeted than a than a publishing company or record label would do it. Um, you know, we have pro we have a, for instance we have a, a educational program called Cooking Beats, where we have a famous beat maker will sit on the stage and it's like the motif of a cooking show on TV. Instead of the cameras in the ceiling looking down on the stove, we have their laptop laptop hooked up to a giant screen and they tear apart one of their famous beats and then we'll try this out at Canadian Music Week or conferences like that and and they're very very popular kids love it uh you know that gets the brand out it gets a, it, it educates people we have song camps um, now how about literally giving an act money to develop or literally um trying to make inroads at a label or a publisher so um you know, again, we're complementary to what the publishers and labels do. We think we're at the stage pre, when, prior to when people are ready for them. So if we can do something to keep somebody alive for another year, get them to a showcase, uh, get them to a song camp, get some craft development, get them some confidence. When we have a, 
uh, song camp, the number one thing that comes out of it is self-confidence. Yeah, you know, every camp usually yields one song that gets cut or something, but it's kind of a, they're always sequestered uh, and people are living together for a week and they come out of it feeling like they just had a week's worth of incredible group therapy, you know, that they did make them make the right choice in their life. And they, ha- and they have now a group of people that, that they know that think like them and et cetera. And so just the, the, the boost of self-confidence um, keeps them alive and, 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 and working at their craft for another year. And then they're ready to get a record deal or a publishing deal. Okay, so uh, people thought hip-hop would die, and today they would say it's like rock and roll. It's forever, but rock and roll seems to have died. So as someone who's a big observer of the scene, certainly where it's happening, you know, what is the runway, what is the roadmap into the future? Well, it's somewhat controversial when I say this, and I don't say it because uh, uh, I want it to be this way, but this is my own personal opinion of what, the future holds is that I think that the guitar is dead and rock is dead. Uh, and, and that's an exaggeration. They're not dead. They're never going away, but they're never going to be the primary. Mainstream like jazz. Again. Yeah. Like jazz. Um, and one of the reasons for that is it's the unstoppable march of technology and the unstoppable march of the democratization of music, the democratization of the making of music. So look back, say, um, electric guitar was an, was a great example itself of of incredible democratization of the creation of music. And so, before that, you had big band era. You had two busloads full of really sophisticated people who could read music, write music, and were uh, well trained in their instruments. And they could only record if they went into a thing called a studio owned by a record label. And um, that was a very elite, closed group of people. Uh, then an electric guitar comes along. Let's say Buddy Holly's hands, right? Three chords. Just not doesn't know how to play his guitar uh, like a you know famous trumpet player or Benny Goodman knew how to play his clarinet or whatever. He wasn't trained. He just knew three chords, and he recorded in a garage, uh, which was also democratization of recording. Where his uh, you know um, what's his name Norman Petty? Is that yeah, him? yeah. This producer probably bought used gear from one of those big New York studios that you couldn't get into anymore, and and put it in his garage, and and that was a, you didn't they didn't need permission from anybody, and they went toured with three guys at a station wagon, hugely forward, you know, s- sampling, same thing, right? So, I think that um, that march of technology that democratizes creation of music is unstoppable, and and it puts creation of music in the hands of people who don't have any training. And every generation, people who are most interested in making music pick up the tools of their generation, which today is a laptop or a phone, um, and uh, and start to make music with those tools. And the very best of them, the most motivated and driven, you know, end up uh, becoming successful and make a difference. And that becomes their generation's music. That's what's happening now. And I think, personally, the next wave of the democratization of the creation of music is artificial intelligence. Because I think, I think the... The future of creation of music will be how people, humans, create art by mucking with the technology. Little bit deeper. So, some examples. Um, I started as a recording engineer, and um, I watched the introduction of the drum machine. And uh, first of all, drummers, of course, were horrified, and they had every excuse in the world why it was no good, it didn't feel like a human, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, people tried to use it to make it sound real right and and then the smart drummers said well they bought one and they became a percussion solutionist instead of a drummer and and they still had the same uh, uh, producers would hire them and now they hired them to make that drum machine thing right and then um uh eventually people started using a drum machine 
in ways that people couldn't play drums. You know, take a hi hat and go, you know, right. that kind of thing. And and so that what it got its real value because it's doing something that a person can't do. Then I watched the sampler come in. The Fairlight was the first commercial digital sampler. And um, I remember the very first reaction people was always, oh, now we don't have to hire a cello player. Right. I can sample a cello and play it on the keyboard. And then I attribute, this may not be true, but I personally in my life attribute the breakthrough, commercial breakthrough of the art of using a sampler was uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. Trevor Horn produced it. And I, I, I remember where I was when I first heard it. I was driving along the freeway in Toronto and I had to pull over because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I, I'd never heard anything like it. And of course, what he did, instead of trying to emulate something real, he said, gee, I wonder if we put the entire London Symphony Orchestra on, on each key and then went, you know, ba-da, right. or brrrr, right? And so he created something that, never, that humans couldn't do. So I think that that's the same thing with artificial intelligence. Another example of technology like that would be autotune. So the guy who invented autotune, I've read interviews with him, he invented autotune to tune vocals. Right. Um, and yet, you know, the breakthrough for autotune was the share record, I believe. And the guys were in the studio, I'm sure, uh, with her. And they said, oh, her voice, she's slightly out of tune. How, what do we do? Oh, I've heard of this new thing called autotune. Let's go rent it. They rented it. They plug it in. And what do you do when you plug in a piece of gear for the first time? You turn it all the way left and then all the way right. And when they turned it all the way right, it went, <laughs> and invented that over autotune sound and then the next wave of music i remember seeing was i think it might have been pharrell or one of those producers and maybe a timbaland or pharrell when at the height of when autotune first came in uh, widely they said even if it's in tune i autotune it because that's the sound of music today and now you got kids growing up who want to be singers and they're listening to autotune records and they naturally sound like they're autotuned so all, you look at all those kind of uh, developments, and then I think it's really easy to look at artificial intelligence and say, okay, that certainly democratizes creating music because anybody would okay, be able to push a button. Okay, just for the uninitiated, yeah. describe what artificial intelligence is and how it would apply in the music business. I'm not intelligent enough to art describe artificial intelligence, but, uh, you know, it's computers. But ultimately, you program the computer to the point where it can imitate human behavior. Right. Yeah. And right. then hopefully go and a little learn. step beyond and, well, that. Well, imitate and then learn. Right. 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 Yeah. And, uh, um, and so machine learning is another, right. another term for it. So there's already platforms out there that make music that, um, uh, that either have no intervention from a person or you, in, you interact with it in different ways. Like you type in purple or something. Right. And, um, uh, so that I, I think that's the future I, right now. Wait, wait, just to be clear, because based on all your things, you've said there's a technology and the human plays with the technology. Right. Do you believe that ultimately AI will create its own music or what the human will do with the tools of AI? The latter. So, well, first of all, AI is making music right now, but right. again, just like those examples I gave, um, they're using pe – people are expecting regular sounding music to come out of it. And people are saying, well, it's not very good or it's not – you know, it's, there's no soul or whatever. Right. But I think what's going to happen is that somebody will interact with it and come up with something, the equivalent of taking the hi-hat and going – they'll do that with words. They'll do it with melodies. They'll combine – you know, um, uh, different strains of music that people have never done before. They'll do it in a way you can't before, and they'll do it without any knowledge of how to do that because they're just interacting Messing with the computer. With yeah. Okay. How come certain sounds have their window and fade? Like in the late 70s, it was the sin drum, right? But Boom. the fake hand clap 
of the TR-808 lives on. Why do you think that is? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, when I hear that, I go, God, I remember that in 1982. And so it immediately makes it me feel like these people are not testing the limits, which brings me to the next question. Irrelevant of what instruments or how this music is created, right now, a lot of the popular music's lacks melody do you believe melody will come back well i don't even say it i don't even think it lacks melody today i, I think that um I, I you know it's really easy to say oh today's music sucks well in whatever way either it sucks generally or it has no melody or whatever and i think that we have no perspective on it i think that every generation's always said that about the following generation's music um, uh, I hear lots of melodic hooks on record. Generally, there are somebody, a featured singer on a rap record, or there, exactly. or there, are, or there are an instrumental part. But I, I hear lots of melodies. There's no question that records today, the production forms more of this of the uh, core of the of the record than in in the, in the past. But again, that that's just a um, the march of time. That's progress. I mean, uh, there's more technology involved with making a record. Well, I now. would say a lot of the beat-driven records, melody is secondary, tertiary, or if there at all. So just like the same thing, you know, there's the steampunk movement, which drives me nuts. But one would anticipate it somewhere down the line. There's going to, just like with vinyl, which is really amplified beyond reality. Don't there get will me be, started. Excuse me? Don't get me started. Exactly. On We're on the same page, it sounds like. But... <laughs> The um, there will be people who would probably return to acoustic instruments just as a reaction. Oh, I th yeah. You, there's no question. The pendulum always swings. But I think that the real instrument backlash will be upward peaks and downward curve. Okay. Yeah. So, do you anticipate any changes imminently? Uh, I think that in, you know, in the next few years, whether it's two, three, five, we're going to see. Um, great records come out that have astonishing things about them that are there because of the AI and the way the person screwed with it. Again, I, I, I can't, you know, I'm not smart enough to, or involved in enough to imagine exactly what it is, but the, very simplistically, you know, you, you're going to get somebody who takes a Bob Dylan, a, a lyric program and turns Bob Dylan to 10, takes a melody program and turns, you know, McCartney to minus five and hooks them up with a digital delay and a phaser between them or something. You know, that's a very uber simplistic way of describing it. And you believe it. that's within the next two or three years? I think two to five years. Okay, yeah. let's talk Spotify is the dominant player in streaming music, even eclipses YouTube at this point. Uh, but if you look at the Spotify top 50, Unlike if people who grew up in the era of top 40 radio, it is pretty monochronistic, if that's even a word, monochrome, in that it's all basically hip-hop, maybe a little pop thrown in. Right. This is a unique thing because there used to always be a filter saying, no, we're going to put in these other elements. Mm -hmm. And to agree there's radio, radio to a great degree replicates that. Mm -hmm. To what degree is that evidence of what people really want or do we need an opportunity for other styles of music? That's a great question, and I sort of alluded to it earlier that we're concerned about that when it comes to, say, the existence of Canadian content, right? Um, our, it's very early on in our studies. We're going to refine our data, but our data is showing that um, the consumption of Canadian music by Canadians is disturbingly low in the, in the digital space compared to the traditional broadcast media. And if that's the case... 
um, our next thinking is that it must be a discoverability issue because there's no availability issue. Everybody's got their music right. on those platforms. And an example of – and so basically they're unintentionally biased perhaps in favor of – uh, of cultures from large countries or large populations or, you know, certain genres of music or whatever. It's, it's an un, unintentional bias. And um, a good example of that would be, you know, the, was it Martina McBride uh, in the last year said she tried to create an automatic play- playlist and she seeded it with, a, I don't know, a McIntyre track or something like that. And then uh, 19 of the other tracks that were automatically generated for her were all men. Uh, you know, so, and these aren't, there's nothing evil about this stuff. These are un- unintended consequences of the me- discovery mechanisms. And I think these uh, these platforms genuinely, A, want to make music as discoverable as possible and, and, and please the customer that way. And B, they want to localize their products for different territories and different cultures. I just think that we're not y- there yet to the point where it's done, uh, done well enough. And uh, So that's a concern of ours in terms of Canadian content. But if you, you could insert any subgenre or small genre or uh, of, of music there that I think everybody should be as concerned uh, and because um, uh, of what you're saying. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you started out as a drummer. Okay, Fail, when, Failed drummer. When did you start playing drums? I was about five. My dad was an amateur drummer. and he. Oh, was, your father, and so it's in the family. Yeah, he was a big jazz fan, uh, and um, uh, he would uh, play in little jazz combos, and, um, and he, uh, he actually taught me how to listen to records. We'd sit around on a Saturday afternoon, he'd have a beer and we'd in front of the big old console stereo that's as big as a couch. And he'd be listening to, you know, Benny Goodman and Count Basie and all those people. And uh, uh, he'd say, listen to this, listen to that sax solo, listen to how that guy, drummer did this. And uh, so that really got me both intrigued and, and, and interested and be able to listen, right? And, uh, uh, and then I played in a town marching band that my dad was involved with to keep the kids off the street. We had no music in schools. But I was the youngest kid ever in the, in the band, and I would we'd be on a march, and I'd be playing the cymbals, and um, uh, I would hit them so hard that they'd they'd stick like a suction cup, so they'd be going <laughs> clang clang, and then so the leader of the band would mark time and wait for the band to catch up, and he'd t- take them out of my hands and unstick them and hand them back to me, <laughs> and then uh, we also played uh, uh, concert. It was a concert band too, like forty kids, right? Uh, you know, or I was probably. 10 when I joined, but it was like maybe as old as 17, 18. And um, the, the leader of the band, his name was Frank Banks, was really a progressive guy, and he and he was trying to keep the kids interested in it. And this is the era, rock era. So he did an arrangement of Tommy's Overture that we were playing in this, you know, 40-person band. Really? Yeah, and then, and then uh, he let myself and uh, the other drummer bring our drum kits in, and we did dueling in a God at a Vita solos <laughs> in the middle of this, you know, horn orchestra thing. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then you know bands and everything. But I, I wanted to be. Um, uh, I, I didn't think you could. You could, I didn't think you could be from my town and 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 be successful in music. Just to be for my audience, where was your town? It's called Lindsay. It's about an hour and a half from northeast of Toronto. And uh, in, in in the entire existence of the town, nobody ever made anything out of being a music career. And talk about Canadian content impact. Um, uh, at our award show uh, that's coming up in the end of March, um, we're probably there's probably half a dozen or more awards going to people from uh, the area of my town. Wow. Okay, so you're growing up. Are you like a music fanatic, buying the records, listening to the radio, or is it just one thing that you do? No, no, I was fanatical about it, and I, I was fanatical about records. I was I just mesmerized by what I called my magic records, and everybody's got them in their life. There's those records that, you know, when your girlfriend leaves you or something and it saves your life by listening to it or just takes you to another world, transports you. And I had records like that. And, and what would you remember a couple of those records? Um, oh, well certainly uh, dark side of the moon. Okay. Uh, and in fact that record, um, and the guess who I get that in a minute, but the guess who to me are the big bang of Canadian music. And, and, and um, before them, you didn't think that you could be Canadian and you could do this. And after them, they made people realize that you could be Canadian, you could have world success and, and, and not have to move to the U.S. And even in my life, bigger uh, story was the behind the scenes. You could do that. And Jack Richardson, the guy who discovered them, produced them, became sort of my hero. And I wanted to uh, 
I wanted to find him because I wanted to find what the secret of mag- making a magic record was. And so I was into technology and electronics and, and when you, you're the era of Pink Floyd and, and all the flying echoes and things like that. And I thought, okay, it's technology. That's the secret to making a magic record. And so uh, I, I wanted to become a recording engineer and um, I wanted to thought you could must be a school for it because you look at a picture of a recording console with a thousand knobs on it. And there wasn't any schools in the world. And I looked for two years, and finally the fir- world's first accredited course for recording engineering record, record production sprung up in London, Ontario, Canada, called Music Industry Arts at Fanshawe College. And I found it. It was an amazing moment in my life when I realized there is a school. And uh, my goal was to find the school, get in the school, graduate, find Jack Richardson, and go work for him. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, how long were you in the school? Three years. How'd you find Jack Richardson? Um, he came down to the guest lecture one day because his son Garth was uh, a new student in the first year, and I was in my third year. And I thought, this is it. My heroes come. I, I, this is my day. And I basically followed him around like a puppy dog and basically hung onto his ankle and wouldn't let go all day. And finally, at the end of the day, he turned to his son and he said, who's that kid? And uh, Garth said, well, he's actually the number one student in the school. <laughs> And he said, and and he said he's not crazy. <laughs> he just thinks he's a, you're just his hero. So uh, Jack turned to me and said, "Hey, if you're ever in Toronto sometime, uh, give me a call and come into the studio." And hang so you around. were there Monday. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I basically never left. And I and I graduated, and he I got an internship. Uh, they didn't call it that then, but he got I got he hired me for the summer when I graduated. And the very very first day, my other hero was Bob Ezrin. And the very, very first day uh, was a Bob Ezrin session. So it was like... Okay, what was your role as an intern then? I was a gopher. Okay. And you remember what the session was? Uh, Tim Curry from okay. the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah. It was his first solo record. Okay. So how did you graduate up the ladder in the studio? Because I had been to school, and, and I was in the first generation of people who had been to school. Nobody knew what I knew. And... Um, uh, one day Jack was producing a vocal and, uh, the head engineer, um, couldn't, for some reason, couldn't get the sound working. And Jack and the, and the singer got up pretty upset, of course, after about five minutes of, of no sound. Right. And, and, uh, singer said, I'm going to get a coffee. And, and Jack, uh, turned to the engineer and said, I'm going to get a coffee too. And if, when I come back, if it's not happening, you're done. That kind of a thing. Right. So he was just shaking. Right. And then, and because I knew how to work the board. I knew how to work the board because when I was hanging out there before uh, they hired me, I would talk to the maintenance guy and he would give me a uh, photocopy of the schematic of the board and then a photocopy of the front page of the manual. So I built a life-size cardboard cutout of the board when I was in school and I used to pretend to work it when I was sitting in bed. So by the time I started there as a gopher, I knew how to work the board, even though I'd never what, touched it. What kind of board did they have there? It was a highly modified Autotronics. Okay. And um, well, what was the name of the studio then? Nimbus Nine. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, so they, uh, I, I knew what was, I knew why the guy would, couldn't get the sound, but I didn't want to embarrass him in front of Jack. And so as soon as Jack left the control room, I said, "Jim, try the red button over there." And he looked at me like, "Who do, you, who are you? What do you know?" And uh, finally, just before Jack came in, he knew he had nothing else to lose, so he tried the red button, and the sound came on. Right. So. From that moment on, they, they trusted me to, to do things. And then I, I happened to uh, be lucky enough to um, uh, be asked to uh, engineer uh, a demo for a band called The Kings because um, their manager's wife was a receptionist in the studio, and she talked Jack into giving the band downtime, free time. But he said, only if you can get one of the guys to engineer it, and nobody wanted to do it. And again, I said, I'll do it. And they looked at me and they said, you? You don't know how to do anything? And I said, no, I went to school, remember? And they had no choice. They had to. How long had he been working there at that point? Uh, 
three, four months, maybe okay. six months. And, um, and so they said, well, I guess it's the only, the only choice. So they let me go in that weekend and I worked with this band and, and they went, went off to try and get a record deal. And about six, nine months later, they couldn't get a record deal, but they came, the father, the uh, guitar player's father had died, left them a lot of money. So they said, we want to make an independent record and uh, we want to block book the studio for a month. And we want Mike to engineer it and produce it. And they said, but he's only ever done your demo. <laughs> and and then uh, we also said, um, nobody's ever had any success with independent records. This was 1980, let's say 81. Right. And, um, and we tried to talk them out of it. And they finally said, look, we're trying to block book your studio for a month. Do you want the business or not? <laughs> right, right. So they said, okay, you can do it, but Mike has to work with the uh, other engineer named Ringo, Ringo Hersina, who was How many rooms were there in the studio? Just one. Okay. But actually that factors into the rest of the story. So we, we so Ringo and I, the next day, started making this record with this band called The Kings, and uh, you know, 30 days go by, and we make the record, and we're starting to do rough mixes, and and, and they had a new song. It was actually two songs in one. It was called This Beat Goes On and Switch and to the Glide. Switch to the Glide. Right. And and they had uh, but but and our really triumphant moment during the making the record was figuring out how to connect the two songs because <laughs> they're recorded separately, right? Right. And uh, they were so. Impressed. Why did you decide to connect them? Well, th they did. That was uh, oh, okay. th that was the bands and and their and one of the managers was a I thought was a, a NAR NAR genius. They had decided to do this. And they had they had realized by playing it live that they didn't work very well independently. But you put them two together, right? And that was one of the biggest lessons I learned about hit songs was from this because I asked the, the manager I said why did you guys know that this was the only way it works he said it's very simple hit records are rhythm melody and hooks one of them's got the melody hook the other's got the rhythm hook you know that kind of thing right so anyway we were had the rough mixes together and Bob Ezrin I know he got the credit on the record I bought the record yeah well he came, so he came around uh trying to measure he was thinking of buying the place and he was measuring one of the rooms to see if he could build a second room next second studio and when the band heard that bob was there they said oh you got to bring him in and hear the stuff and and ringo and i said oh i don't know you know he doesn't probably want to hear this stuff and ringo said you know he hasn't worked with an unknown band since alice cooper and we tried all these excuses we didn't want to bother bob and finally the manager said introduce me to him so, okay, so we go to introduce them, and then they talk for a while, and, and, and he brings Bob back in the control room. Bob says, let me hear it. So he presses, we press play on the tape, and the first thing he hears is this beat goes on, switching the glide. He stops it at the end of it. He says, this is a hit record. I'm going to get you guys a record deal. Seven days later, he had them a deal with Electra Records, and he came in the, in the studio uh, waving a telex or something and uh, saying, great news. You know, we've got the record deal, and I'm going to reproduce the record. And Ringo and I sat there and went, where, where does that leave us? And Bob looked at us and said, oh, you guys are going to engineer it and associate produce. And we said, okay, fantastic. And so we just, the next day we started remaking the same album. <laughs> Did he remake it from scratch? Oh, yeah. And, 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 and you know, it was an incredible example of Bob's genius because he made a f some subtle changes that, in my opinion, made a huge, huge difference. And, and um, uh, uh, so it was good. But although that was the uh, punk era. And um, and the band was not really a punk band, but they were trying to adopt a few of the ethics of punk. And Bob was really into punk, and and he decided that he didn't want to uh, spend any time making the getting the sounds. So um, it was basically you know put the microphones up and roll tape kind of thing. And and to this day, I figure I might have still been an engineer if they would have given us time to get better sounds. But I don't know. Okay, that record was a hit at least in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. How come they could never follow it up? Why, why do most people not follow it up? Because it's lightning, you know, I guess. They also, they kicked the manager out of the, uh, out of the whole situation. And, um, and I really felt that he was an incredibly important part of the, of the 
creative dynamic of the band. And uh, so after I left working for Jack Richardson and then left uh, after I left working for Bob too, um, I went back and found that guy and we started our own company. We called ourselves the producers, but, uh, inspired by the movie and um, went around finding bands, taking the studio make records and um, uh, did a lot of great stuff, but couldn't get arrested. And eventually uh, uh, Frank Davies was running ATV Canada, offered me a job uh, as a creative person there. Okay. Let's go back. So what was your, how long were you an engineer after that King's record? Uh, a couple of years, I guess. Yeah. And you worked with Bob? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I worked with him on uh, the next King's record and then uh, the Kiss record, The Elder. Right. Yeah. So you were Bob's guy? One of them, yeah. yeah. Right. How did it end for you? Um, <laughs> so, you know, when you work in a studio, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 30 days a month, right? And um, I had treated my schooling that way. So three years of 24-7 school. Uh, probably three years, 24-7 in the studio. And I was about at the end of my rope, and I didn't really realize it. And um, and Bob had um, taken, uh, for some reason, I guess with the timing of, of the Kings or the, or the Kiss was not working out the way it was supposed to be, and we had to do both records at once, basically. So he had, we'd do two weeks with Kiss, two weeks with Kings, two weeks with Kiss, two weeks with Kings, and it was just driving me crazy. And finally, uh, um, one day, uh, Bob was really late for the studio, and um, we got tired of waiting for him because we uh, had decided that if we worked ahead, he might not like it, and uh, we were working for nothing. And if and so with the devil you do, devil you don't. We decided not to. We decided to go out to dinner. And uh, soon after we left, he arrived, and uh, he was upset that we weren't there. And so when we got back to the studio. He said, "Okay, just because you guys uh, have done this, we're going to have to work the weekend." And that was going to be the first weekend I'd had off in months. And as soon as he said, work the weekend, I literally heard a spring in my brain go, boing. I turned around and walked out the door. Uh, the studio was at the edge of, in edge of Toronto. Um, I walked in the countryside for probably two hours. Bob and his wife, and it was just getting dark. They came in looking for me. Uh, people thought I'd like jumped in the river or something. And uh, um, I turned down the offer to drive me back to the studio. I got back to the studio. I went in and tacked up a sign on the wall that said, gone fishing. And a friend of mine worked for a wholesale travel agency, and I said, called her and said, get me on a beach tomorrow. So I went to the Bahamas for a couple of weeks, and two or three weeks, and sat on the beach just staring at the beach, <laughs> staring and at the that, waves. And that was the end? No, what happened was I met a Rastafarian. Uh, this is a true story. I met a Rastafarian on the beach and, um, and started smoking joints with him, and he said, uh, you know what your problem is? Uh, I don't want to imitate the accent, but it, uh, he said, your problem is you've spent too much time working on your career and basically you've, you've atrophied as a person, like a three-legged stool. You know, you've got the right. physical, mental, and, uh, and, and, and spiritual legs, and, and a couple of them have fallen or short. You've fallen over. So I thought, that's a great thing. So I came back, and I didn't care about my career for a while, and uh, then kind of stuff started to happen, and I found got the partner with, that, uh, produce, with the manager. Okay, wait, but when you came back, you didn't work in the studio no, anymore? no. I uh, did nothing for a while, and then then found my partner. And we found and we started, um, you know, finding bands okay. in the studio. But when you walked for good, yeah. they were cool with that. Today, there are people lining up to work. Yeah, no, well, Bob was incredibly uh, understanding about it. I mean, you know, he knows the pressures of all that stuff, and and uh, so I, you know, I I learned more about balancing myself. I think you know with that, and 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 it's I think that's a good good lesson for anybody's life. You know, so you go to work for ATV Publisher. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you end up running EMI Music Publishing Canada? 
I was so I was really lucky that um, uh, shortly after I got there, um, uh, I met with one of the writers uh, of a band called Toronto that had been signed there, and at ATV, at ATV Canada, and it was it was the the biggest outlet for Canadian talent. Um, uh, they had Aldo Nova, they had uh, Eddie Schwartz who wrote me "Hippie with Your Best Shot." Um, they had a big, um, uh, they had Chilliwack, um, uh, a lot of success. Uh, and they had this band called Toronto that was on Solid Gold Records, uh, Neil Dixon's label. And um, uh, the Brian Allen, the guitar player, main writer, called me up and he said, you know, um, our deal is up with you guys and you only publish the stuff that was on our records. And I have some stuff that wasn't on the record and want to know if you want to hear it. I said, yeah, sure. So he came in, he played me a bunch of demos and one of them was a song called What About Love? And it was a little cassette Porta Studio demo. And I said, wow, that's a great song. But I've only been on the job for about a month. I already know that I can't sell that song with, with that bad of a demo. And uh, then he called me a week later. So I found, uh, uh, we actually rec- tried to record it on the album that Jim Valance produced for us. And Jim Valance co-wrote it. And uh, it got left off at the last minute. So I have a rough mix of the, of, of the produced version. You want to hear it? I said, yeah, sure. So I brought it in. It was just, I thought it was a total smash. Got it to Don Garrison, who was the head of A&R Capital, who wanted songs for heart. And um, he picked it for heart, and they had a giant hit with it, and basically resurrected their career, and um, gave me a career in music publishing because all of a sudden now I had a, I scored a big goal, right? And that was right before Michael Jackson bought the company. And, Just up there, yeah. The the original rough mix. Yeah. How close was that to the finished hard version? Unbelievably close. It's, it was my first lesson in that. Almost every, nine times out of ten, when somebody uh, uh, gets a demo and, and 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 cuts a record of it, it's it's just like the demo. Uh, and that's a big lesson for me in publishing and, and some song plugging is that nobody ha- has any imagination, right? Okay, so Michael Jackson then buys the label. Well, he buys it to get the uh, right, to the get Beatles. the Beatles songs and uh, fires everybody in the world. Um, and just as we're turning out the lights. I got a call from a, a journalist, music journalist named Nick Cruen, who worked for a mag- tra- Canadian mag- trade magazine called The Record. David Farrell owns David now has FYI Music, which you've probably right. seen. And, I remember The Record. Yeah, and uh, and he had assigned Nick the job of trying to get somebody in ATV to talk about the fact that everybody's losing their jobs. And he called me up and he said, you're my last chance. You're the lowest guy in the poll in the world, and I've tried to get everybody talking, nobody will. And so I had this vision that if I was going to go down, I might as well go down in flames. And I thought, well, I'll just be honest. And uh, then I actually, honest to God, had a vision of a Star Trek episode where um, uh, they were lost in space and they, and they couldn't get a hold of anybody. And there was a ship passing a few light years away. To, so to get its attention, Spock jettisoned the last bit of antimatter and blew it up. And of course, the explosion caused the ship to come and find them and save them. So I thought, I'm going to tr- create an explosion. So I uh, I said you know that how, talked about how important ATV had been to uh, to Canadian talent and getting an outlet to the world and um, Michael Jackson was just going to mothball the whole thing and he presents an image of being a caring religious person and he just turns out to be another ruthless mogul so he printed it and never thinking never thought anything else of it and um, went off in my merry way and I actually got a job at Attic Records uh, Almer's company uh, doing A and R and um, Unbeknownst to me, uh, this got picked up by an American wire service, and I was being quoted on radio stations and newspapers calling Michael Jackson a ruthless mogul. And uh, also unbeknownst to me, he was reading all this, should be making a commitment to all these writers and things. And and they go, okay, what do you want to do? And, and what Branca told me was that he said, find this guy and hire him. So I'm working for Al Mayer, and I get a call from the head of CBS Songs in Canada because CBS uh, Songs right. admi- had the administ- administration of it. 
And he said, there's an airport, there's a plane ticket at the airport for you. You're going to New York to talk to the head of CBS songs. So I said, okay. So I went to the airport and uh, got a, picked up by a car at LaGuardia and they took me to see Mike uh, Stewart and Harvey Shapiro who ran CBS songs. And, and they said, Michael Jackson's read your comments <laughs> and then just stared at me. And I, I thought I was going to end up with the Hudson River. <laughs> and uh, finally, I just I looked up, I looked down, left, right. And I just, you know, it was really, really awkward. And so finally, Mike Stewart goes, he wants to give you a chance to put up or shut up. And uh, he says, so I said, okay. And he said, all right, so go back to Canada and uh, work for CBS Songs. So that was it. That was the negotiation. And I then went back downstairs, got in the car that was waiting for me, went back to the airport. And, and what did you tell Al Mayer? Um I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> so, uh, but but Al uh, um, had actually said to me, uh, I'm, "I don't want you to take this job just waiting for an, a job from major to come along, right?" And and there was um, some things about the job that I didn't think were as advertised, and 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 um, so I, I didn't feel so bad about it. I, I, other than uh, I did feel bad about it, but I I felt like it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, right? And um, and so uh, I said, Al, you don't have to you don't have to pay me for the week I've been here. And he said, Okay, then. You know. <laughs> um, okay, but, so you got to work for CBS. How does that uh, morph into EMI? SBK bought it, and um, by this time, uh, you know, I'm uh, doing pretty well as a song plugger. I'm getting songs in Joe Cocker Records and things like that. And uh, um, I guess Marty Bandier, Charles Koppelman, and Stephen Swid were doing their due diligence on The Office, and they had me come down to New York and meet them. And I think I gave a pretty passionate pitch about Canadian music and, and how the how, how the future could be and how, um, you know, there's government support and all this kind of thing. And and they uh, so they they seemed to like me and they empowered me and um, and then actually moved me to L.A. So mid '80s, um, my wife Sam and I and my oldest, my then only child T.J. packed up and moved to L.A. and uh, worked uh, for EMI down, or SPK down here initially, and then it, they sold to EMI, became EMI. And uh, um, while that was down here, um, one of the things we did was uh, he introduced me to uh, Charles Koppelman and Marty Bandier introduced me to Artie Mogul. You must know Artie. What uh, a character. Biggest, most unforgettable character <laughs> I've ever met in my life, inside or outside the business. Brooklyn street hustler, you know, gambling addiction. Uh, he was the Forrest Gump of the music business, right? Where it, you know, almost anybody you wanted to name that was huge, he had some sort of right. association with them or the deal or whatever, right? And um, so he said, uh, okay, kid, who do you want to meet? And I said, uh, Richard Perry. And so I was fascinated by producers. And uh so he he literally picked up the phone and dialed his number from memory, and Richard answered and Artie said, "Richard, Artie, lunch, La Dome tomorrow," and then hung up. And uh, La Dome was right next to our offices, and uh, uh, so the next day we're walking over there, and he said, "We have to think of some excuse why we're meeting Richard Perry. He doesn't want to meet you. You're just a schmuck from Canada." And so he said, at this time, it was right after we had Tracy Chapman was a big SBK right. success story, and all the labels wanted to have a production deal with SBK. So he said. Um, We'll, uh, we'll uh, tell him we need some acts for the production company. So uh, we sit down, we're having lunch, and he's telling us the different things he's working on, and none of them seemed that interesting. And then he could tell he wasn't in, getting a spark from us. And so he kind of like reached down into the, the, the bottom of his mental bag and said, well, there's one other thing that I'm working on. It's the daughters of, Wilson, of, of um, Beach Boys and Mamas and Papas. And as soon as he said that, he could tell he got a big rise from Marty and I. We're looking at each other, our eyes are bugging out, and, and so he 
switches into Uber sales pitch mode. So um, uh, Artie slammed the table. And he said, we want them. And then the entire restaurant went silent, like you see in the movies, right? And everybody's staring at us. And I said, Artie, shouldn't we listen to some music first? He said, no, we want them. <laughs> and, and I said, Artie, we got to listen to some music. And he said, all right, send over some music. So we go back to the office. An hour later, a messenger arrives with the cassette. We put it in. And the very first song of the cassette is Hold On. And we look at each other and we go, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> So we said it to Charles Koppelman, and uh, the next morning he calls from his car on the way, and he says, this is amazing, I'm going to sign them. So uh, again, we had all these output deals, right? We had production deals with all the different labels, and we had to hand them. We had to pitch them a certain number of acts a year. So Artie says, watch this, kid. I'm going to get the biggest record deal for a new artist in the history of mankind. So we got to go to dinner with all the heads of all the labels and, and, uh, and, and Wilson Phillips and uh, watch the wind up. And, and he wound it up to $650,000 for the first record. And then, bang, SBK is sold. And, it's, and now it's SBK Records. And uh, Charles, I'm in, his, I'm in Artie's office one day, and Charles called and he said, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we want the girls for SBK Records. The bad news is we're not paying them six hundred fifty <laughs> grand, and you have to tell them. So he said... Watch this, kid. I'm going to wind it down. <laughs> so only Artie could have done this. And, and, but what he did was promise them that SBK will stop at nothing to make their record successful. Right. And, of course, that's what That happened. was the case. Now, were you at the first SBK convention in the desert when they debuted? Yeah. I was yeah. there with Dan. Really? Oh, well, well, that's amazing. That's hysterical. And uh, Michelle Phillips, et cetera. Okay. How come Glenn Ballard ended up producing the record? Because um, uh, Richard, to develop the group, had brought in Glenn to do the demos. And so Glenn had co-written everything uh, and, and produced the demos. The demo of Hold On was phenomenal. Uh, you know, okay. So it ends with at EMI ultimately when it, there's another corporate transition. Yeah. And then you go to work for Oli and now you're so kept. So who are you? Are you a, a drummer, a recording engineer, a publisher, uh, a guy on uh, performing end of it, performance rights? I'm a guy who was, her whole career was in search of the secret of making a magic record. And a, one day I, found, I figured it out, and it wasn't um, anything the technology was doing. It wasn't anything the, the, about guiding the performance. It was about what they were singing. It was the song. That's the secret to making a, a magic record. And uh, so I'm a song person, and I had a incredibly fortunate to, to exercise that love of song and songwriting uh, as a publisher. And now I'm doing that as a, uh, as a you know, uh, chief membership officer at SOCAN. Um, we're protecting writers, protecting their rights, getting them paid. We're stimulating their creativity. It's all the stuff that I've, I've already always ever done. Okay, really. are you as excited about music today as you were back then? Yeah, I think I think that, um, like I said earlier, I think every generation picks up the tools of a generation and starts making music. But one can argue that certainly in the 60s and 70s, music drove the culture. There was music and radio. Mm -hmm. Certainly for the last 25 years, there's been technology. And as big as music is, I will argue that technology drove the culture. What is music's place going forward? Well, you know, I've, you know of course, I've, I've seen you, you write that a lot, and I agree to a large degree. Although, uh, by the way, I said to Doug, the engineer, when I came here today, I feel like I'm in the Abbey Road of podcasting. <laughs> Because, uh, uh, you know, to me, this is not about me. This is about you because I'm uh, so inspired by everything you write. And, and, and I listen to every okay. one of your podcasts. But Okay, okay, okay keep going. <laughs> but, uh, um, I, you know, yes, I think that more kids grow up today idolizing tech entrepreneurs and want to be an tech entrepreneur probably than idolize, you know, so-called rock stars. 
and want to be so-called rock stars. But I also think that, you know, the historically the people of our generation uh, and and the music that we were, we were into, it's easy for us to say that music's not driving the culture anymore. But I don't know if you could say that if you're a hip hop fan, you know. And I don't, if you look well, at the, I would say with hip hop, and this is not only about hip hop. To the people it's important to, it's huge. But prior to the last 15 years, last 10 years, if you were as big as Drake, everybody in America knew your songs. This is not a reflection on Drake. Right. It's just a reflection on society, and it's not only music. It's hard to get that level of mind share. And I don't believe the business has adjusted. And what I also believe is a result of that, however much of the mind share of music hip-hop gets— the press and the major labels are focusing only on that as if it were the last century mm-hmm. when all these other things who that may never graduate to that level have a greater impact impact or more self-sustaining than ever. No, I don't disagree with that. I mean, the, no- the amount of noise out there is incredible. And, and as you say, if you're inside the bubble, you think that something, everybody knows about something and they, and they don't really. Right. But in terms of the influence, I mean, look at the influence that hip hop's had on fashion. Absolutely. Uh, but it's a language. Little, yeah. But a little long in the tooth. Yeah. For sure, uh, you know, look. Uh, the pendulum always swings, and there's going to be something that that, that replaces the. the well, the interesting thing is twofold. We we lived through so many eras. Let's just call it the MTV era, and it was to a degree driven by MTV, where they promote one thing, and then that would be over. The sound would change completely, mm-hmm. and certainly since the beginning of the century, the sound has been hip hop. Mm-hmm. Okay, not that it hasn't evolved. So for those of us who lived through the previous decades. We constantly expected something else to come along, and it has not happened. Now, granted, hip-hop embraced the internet long before every other genre, if the other genres have even embraced it. But speaking of hip-hop, one thing you've maintained and we've talked a lot about is you believe when songwriting is the essence, but you also believe it's about collaboration. Mm -hmm. Okay, And certainly that's what hip-hop is. Why don't you tell my audience your beliefs about collaboration? Well, I I always – I always uh, write you a nasty note every time you, you shit on collaboration. Right. Uh, you know, the, 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 the knock on collaboration is it's committee songwriting, right? Well, that, well, it's one thing to have two songwriters, another thing to have 19. Yeah. Well, look, that, that could be overboard, but often, sometimes that's because there's, there's samples incorporated right. and that had three Well, forget those. I'm it. talking about yeah. how many people are in yeah. the room. Well, I, would, look, I think about this a lot. And for one thing— and and maybe they go overboard now. I mean, there's a joke that people say if you delivered pizza to the session, you get ten percent. Right. Um, but on the other hand, if you take the Jeez. Motown era, right, which you know, my uh, one of my mentors, Marty Bandier, used to say, uh, arguably was the greatest era, uh, you know, of, or the greatest, uh, most successful um, uh, creative music scene in history. And there's a lot to be said about that. Um, you know, you had great records where um, what ended up being the biggest hook in the record was a guitar part that the guitar player made up in the studio as they're recording it. And a lot of times they never got any writing credit, right? So, you know, maybe the pendulum was too far that way. Maybe it's gone too far the other way. But at least there, people are being inclusive as to, people, uh, you know, who's important in the making of the record. Um, I, I but think, I will, I, I will yeah. stop there, though. But the difference is, especially those records, they were essentially cut live. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, many of the hit records are reworked and reworked. They bring other people right. polishing it to try to make it a hit record. Well, I think – I, well, look, who knows go th- go, what goes through the minds of everybody when they're doing this. I think it's, there's always um, the, the gamut from people sitting down to make a hit record right. for, all the way from that to people are sitting down to make great music and it happens to be a hit. So 
whichever way, I think that people are just trying to have be great and they're trying to make great music and they're trying to make a lot of money at the same time. Um, most great music to me has been the uh, result of collaboration of one sort of another, whether it's co-writing or not co-writing. Look at The Who, for instance, probably a great example, right? I can't imagine Pete Townsend having a successful career uh, as a singer-songwriter if he hadn't been in The Who. Can't imagine Roger Daltrey having a successful career as, a, as an artist if he wasn't in The Who. And back in those days... Um, the first rung in the ladder was so high that you couldn't get to it. You, you had to try to scheme how to get to that first rung. And so, you know, the, the visual metaphor would be, well, why don't this group of people get down on all fours and I'm going to stand on their back and then somebody can stand on my shoulders and they can grab the first rung. And so they coalesced into self-organized groups of people to make something that was better than any one of them could do. The whole was greater than some of the parts. And that's what I think all collaborations are. So whether, so whether it's songwriting, whether it's, uh, you know. Uh, okay. Well, we haven't discussed it quite this deep before. or Maybe I haven't gotten it. And I certainly agree with that overall philosophy. Let's just say the song. Yeah. Now, let's, of course, the point being was the lick part of the song, whatever. But literally, as a publisher, well, I guess they're coming in with demos. They come in with a song. Do you believe that there are multiple people in the room? Let's just say even two mm -hmm. or three it's better than having one. Well, if it's the right dynamic, sure. You know, you ha you can't have somebody who's a bully and you can't have, you have to have, there has to be an auteur. There has to be an auteur. And then whether that's the artist himself, which in case, when the case of most of these people we're talking about, I think it's the artist that's the auteur who's, you know, um, um, but somebody has to be the creative brain. It's like a movie. Like movies have hundreds of people working on them. You will go to see a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know whose movie it is, even though he's got uh, several hundred people working on the movie, right? So I think the most all the great music out there has that person, and they're and if they're if they're doing the job right, they're bringing in ideas from everybody, and they're re they're rejecting the shitty ones, and they're accepting the great ones, or you're, they're rejecting the ones that don't fit their vision, and they're and they're accepting the great ones. And uh, um, so, how could you have too many good ideas? I don't think you can. And I think it takes uh, it's very 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 rare where you have one human being who has enough great ideas and is a good enough. A, manipulating all the, the the elements of music themselves and can sing or rap it themselves. How many human beings in, in, in the face of the earth are that good they can do it all by themselves? Not well, many. No, not many. Prince, Todd Rundgren, etc. Yeah. Okay, so here you are. You've had a storied career. What's your personal dream in your time left? I'm talking about business-wise. Yeah. Which may intersect with personal for all I know. Um, I, that's a good question. Um I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, which is to uh, uh, help inspire, help um, uh, protect uh, and songwriters, and 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 have uh, create environments where they can succeed. And I think um, I want to see SoCan continue the path it is, which is becoming a globally competitive PRO. Because in the world, that's you know going back to why did I go to SoCan is because I wanted to see it become globally competitive. Because um, all the new licensees are the most powerful companies in the history of the world. And um, sooner or later, uh, you're going to get completely lost and nobody will talk to you if you're not of a certain size, not a certain uh, body of repertoire that they need, certain capability with the back office. So SoCan's on that path, and I want to help it continue on that path. Um, and uh, I just want to, you know, as I said, um, help people make get from point A to point B. I've always been most interested in working with people who had nothing going on career-wise and helping them have a career than I was interested in in finding people who had a career going on and helping them get to the next level. It's just okay. Who was someone you worked with who you thought had it didn't make it? Um, well, it depends on the definition of didn't make it. 
was not did not turn out to be financially successful, have a sustained career, and the people paying attention didn't know who they were. Um, I would. My answer is going to be not. Um, not as dire straits as you're just describing, right. but somebody who didn't get their due uh, right. commercially would be a stero. Um, uh, those of you that uh, that have ever heard of her know how incredibly talented she is, and she still still works in the business, and she's a great person and has um, um, you know a lot of good stuff going on. But she should have been a super duper star, and uh, um, uh, and I think it's just one of the things. But the the gods didn't let it happen. Her her original uh, collaborator Doc McKinney has gone on to become. Uh, uh, one of the most important influential, you know, uh, producers in the in the world, and he was a big part of the weekend uh, sound when the weekend came out. Um, but she's just mega talented. Um, look, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, even though I've had a career where you know my job was to greenlight things, I really honestly don't really know how why some things work and why they don't. Right? Uh, I'm fascinated by it. Like I always studied, tried to study greenlight stories from other industries to try and apply it to me. You know, but I mean. I, I think the two greatest green light stories in the history of the entertainment business were George Martin signing the Beatles and uh, uh, 20th Century Fox, Alan Ladd Jr. giving the green light to Star Wars. Right. And they both uh, have involved the exact same thing, which is they just had a gut feeling about the people standing in front of them. And there was no science, no math, no data, um, no thinking. Just uh, in the case of, uh, of Star Wars, Alan Ladd Jr., uh, after um, – um, George Lucas had been turned down by every movie studio. And after he, he presented his treatment and his pitch to Ellen Ladd Jr., Ellen Ladd Jr. said, uh, I haven't got a fucking clue what you're talking about, but you're the guy who made, her, made American graffiti, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> and I was lucky enough to meet George Martin uh, a number of years before he died, and I asked him about you know the Beatles. And I said, look, I've read every single thing you've ever written, every interview you've ever done, but i got to know, standing in front of you, what was going on in your, in your head, your heart, and your gut when you made that decision. And he said, uh, th- there's three things. He had three reactions. His first reaction was that he thought they were a pretty crappy band. His second reaction was there's no evidence they could write songs. But his third reaction was when they walked in the room together, they had so much overwhelming charisma that he felt like they changed the molecules in the room, right? And um, I think that's, you know, that's sort of what it's about. And uh, uh, that's, a, that's a fun part about what we do, too, is that you just never really know. And- okay, and who are you most proud of being a midwife to success of? Um, there'd be several. Uh, Some 41 would be one of them. Um, uh, we, again, at EMI Publishing, we signed them when they were still in high school. Uh, and they uh, they were brought to our attention by a guy named, Mark, guy named Mark Costanzo, who was from a group called Len. And they had a hit with Steal My Sunshine. Right. Love that record. Love that record. In fact, Mark would be another one because um, Mark was, uh, Len was a group that uh, um, uh, they had a, um, it was a brother and sister, Mark right. and Sharon, and, and and a number of other people, and they had this reputation. What I didn't know, but they had a reputation of being impossible to deal with. And in fact, when I just when I signed them, I got calls from all the record people in Toronto who said, "We heard you just signed Lynn. And I said, "Yeah, why?" And they said, "I kicked that guy out of my office," you know. <laughs> and uh, so to deal with them and then to help nurture that through. Um, okay, so how come they could never follow that up? Uh, I don't know. It's lightning. You know how many? How did he hit, hit by lightning? I mean. Uh, and where are they today, the brother and sister? Um, well, the, uh, Mark still is in the business, and he uh, spends a lot of time in Nashville developing a creative scene around him and down there. I'm sure he's going to break through with it very soon. Um, 
Steal My Sunshine uh, had half a dozen unbelievable sinks in the last couple of years. Uh, so I think he's doing pretty well off of it. Um, but Sum 41 was cool because, so he, he kept saying to us, there's this group that um, his friend Greg Norrie had befriended, and we got to hear them. And we'd say, okay, how do we hear them? Well, they don't play any gigs. They're in Stone High School. Well, you got a de- uh, did you have a demo? No, I didn't have a demo. So uh, after a lot of back and forth, we decided to go to their basement in <laughs> a suburb of Toronto called Ajax and, and Derek Wilby's basement. And uh, we went down, heard them play two or three songs, and we said, this is amazing. You're signed. And um, and then uh, what happened was Greg Norrie, who was from a band called Treble Charger, was, was the connection between Mark and the band. Uh, Greg thought he was the manager, and he came back off the road and found that his band now had a publishing deal. <laughs> and um, and uh, um, he and Mark had a bit of an argument about it, so Mark left the scene, and then so we, we strategized with Greg what to do. We said, well, since they never really played any gigs— they need to play gigs. In order to play gigs, they need an independent record. So let's make an independent record. So they got some factor money, one of the support systems. We put in some money, made a record, and we we liked it so much we decided to change the strategy and go right to the shop at record deal for them. And everybody in North America turned them down except for an independent label from Montreal called Aquarius Records. They didn't want to sign to Aquarius for the world, so they kept that interest in their back pocket. And then we kind of just stumbled along for a long time, and we got re- all got really dejected. And finally, the band came to us and said, we think we know what the problem is. And we said, what, what's the problem? They said, everybody just listens to our demo, and they think we sound like Blink-182. They don't understand what characters we are. So we have to present that dimension. I said, that's pretty smart. What do you want to do about that? Well, we want to make an independent EPK. And they used to... Um, uh, Electronic press kit. Yeah. They were the kind of kids that had, at those days, camcorders. They had a camcorder welded to their forehead wherever they went. They made all this footage that we would now call jackass-type footage, but it didn't exist then. And and these guys would have been monsters on YouTube if if it had existed then. But anyway, they took all that jackass-type footage. They edited it together in a seven-minute masterpiece that was, to this day, probably the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So we got that to the labels, and everybody changed, turned around because of the reason of the band. They now understood that they're characters. I remember one time, um, uh, Lee Lust, an A&R guy from Electra, came. Just heard from him today. I know. So Lee was a great guy. So he came to Toronto. He was the first A&R guy that flew to Toronto to, to meet the band. And so I told them, I said, listen, guys, we're, this guy's coming in. We're going to go to dinner. Selfishly, it's going to be near my house. It's an Italian restaurant. It's a little bit uh, she-she. And I was kind of beating around the bush, and then they go, you mean you want us to not dress like slobs? I said, well, yeah, if you could. No problem. So the next day, uh, I pick Lee up at the airport. We go to this restaurant, Italian restaurant in my neighborhood, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, the band shows up. You could tell they showed up because there was a commotion at the front door. And they'd gone to the Goodwill store and bought these, like, Mafia Don Jr. suits, pinstripe suits and that, and trench coats. And they walk into this Italian restaurant that dressed like Mafia Dons with the trench coats hanging off their shoulders. And the, everybody in the restaurant just stopped what they're doing to stare at them. They, and there was a big commotion, and the maitre d' like, took their jackets and hung them up. And they sit down, and they, what do they do? They reach into their suit j- jackets, and they pull out toy guns right. and put them on the table. And... I, the waiter almost dropped entire uh, uh, tray of drinks. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen, you know. And that's the kind of guys that were. And anyway, that was pretty satisfying to see that happen. And the Len thing, and, the, and Three Days Grace, I suppose, would be another one um, because they learned how to write songs in my office. Um, Gavin Brown was a writer producer that I'd signed, and uh, uh, we had a new studio that we built in the office. And he said, "Like, found this band. There's nothing worth listening to. I want, I want to take them in uh, to see what we can come up with." I said, "Okay, sure." So I took them to the studio, and they had they had like a sound and a vibe, but they didn't really have any, you know great strong songs. And so every day they would emerge from the studio, they come to my office, play me the songs, and I'd say, ah, "It's okay." 
and they look dejected and they go back in the room with Gavin the next day and you can see the look in Gavin's face that he was trying to tell them they weren't ready yet either. And eventually I came in with something that was really good and I said, wow, that chorus is amazing. And they started high-fiving each other and I said, it'd be good enough to be a verse. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it's good enough to be a verse. Now you got to write, write a great chorus that's even better than that. And they said, it has to be that good? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And you, uh, Bob... I'll never, ever forget this. You could see the lightning bolts go from between person to person in their, from their eyes. You could just feel the energy in the room that a, a, a switch had been flipped. The next day, they went in the studio with Gavin and they wrote, I Hate Everything About You, which is the deal that got them the record deal, song that got them the record deal, made their career happen. To this day, they just they broke, last year they broke the record Van, Han Van Halen had, I think 14 number one rock records in America. They got 16 now. And it's all driven by the song because they they got the whole songwriting thing, right? Michael, this has been wonderful. Well, thank we you. We got great insight into Canada, your career. There's more to plumb. But for now, we're done. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. <laughs> okay. Until next it. time, this is Bob Lefsense. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.